Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor, and here with me is my co-host, Derek. Hello. Today, we will be exploring the sinking of the Great Lakes cargo freighter, SS Carl D. Bradley. Before we dive in, we must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note, before we begin, that neither Eleanor nor I are mariners or experts in the field of maritime history, but we have done our research and will present the information as we understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, there are some details in the sinking that are not confirmed, and we will be transparent about these facts when we come across them. Before we get started, we will go over the basics of nautical terminology. The bow is the very front part of the ship, and the very back end of it is called the stern. The port side is the left and the starboard side is the right. Propellers are sometimes referred to as screws. The hold is the metal sides of the ship. The keel is the very bottom of it. And the superstructure is the top deck, usually made of wood. Smokestacks, or funnels, are large tunnels on top of the ship used to direct steam and smoke away from the deck. Masts are large wooden poles on the deck of the ship, usually used to hoist sails or hold a crow's nest where crew members can see for miles around the vessel. Beam is a measurement that refers to the width of the ship. Thanks, Derek. Our story begins on the Great Lakes in the northern part of the American Midwest. Cargo freighters are a common occurrence on all of the Great Lakes as they transport goods from around America's breadbasket. The Great Lakes are the second largest bodies of fresh water in the world, and they contain 21% of the world's fresh water in total. They are the lakes Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario, and lie on the American-Canadian border. Because of their enormous size, these waters behave much like the average ocean would, experiencing sudden and severe storms much like the ocean. The Great Lakes have an estimated 6,000 shipwrecks lying on the bottom, and an estimated 30,000 sailors have met their end in these incredible bodies of water. The largest of them, Lake Superior, has a maximum depth of 1,333 feet, making it almost as deep as the Mediterranean Sea. The Great Lakes can also experience swells or large waves of up to 30 feet, and this can be deadly for any kind of ship. This unfortunately would be the fate of the SS Carl D. Bradley. SS Carl D. Bradley was laid down in 1923 in the American Shipbuilding Company's yard number 797 in Lorraine, Ohio for the Bradley Transportation Company, being launched on April 9, 1927 and completed a few months later in that year. SS Carl D. Bradley was 639 feet long, had a 65.2 foot beam, and was 10,028 gross registered tons. She was equipped with General Electric high and low pressure steam turbines powering a single propeller, and she was capable of reaching speeds of up to 14 knots. She was manned by 35 crew and was able to carry up to 18,114 tons of stone in her cargo holds. She was a self-loading freighter, meaning she did not need a crane to load her cargo for her, and this saved her time, energy, and money. She was the longest freighter on the lakes for 22 years after being built, only losing her title of Queen of the Lakes, or largest cargo freighter on the lakes, to SS Wilfred Sykes in 1949. She was christened SS Carlty Bradley after the president of Michigan Limestone, with her namesake and hundreds of Rogers City residents in attendance on July 28, 1927. 
She steamed into Calcite Harbor after her christening being declared the last word in freighter construction. Her maiden voyage was from her christening to Rogers City, Michigan, where she spent most of her time and where most of her crew resided. SS Carl D. Bradley was a notoriously sturdy and reliable ship, making a career of dutifully transporting different kinds of limestone from Lake Huron to ports on Lake Michigan and Erie, and occasionally to Lake Superior as well. She was also the first lake freighter to pass through the MacArthur Lock at the Sioux Locks in 1943. As the Queen of the Lakes, it was SS Carl D. Bradley's responsibility every year to break the ice up on the lakes so the smaller vessels can make their way to their destinations. For this reason, SS Carl D. Bradley's forepeak was filled with concrete and plates that were broken during ice breaking season were replaced before she started her regular freighting season. Despite being incredibly reliable, she did have a couple of rough patches in her career. On April 3, 1957, she sustained damage in a collision with MV White Rose on the St. Clair River and had to be dry docked in Chicago for seven days in May of 1957 for repairs to her damaged hull. Carl D. Bradley also experienced two groundings while leaving Cedarville, Michigan in the spring of 1958 and November of 1958 respectively. Curiously enough, these groundings were not reported to the United States Coast Guard, although incidents like these were expected to be reported. The damage sustained from these groundings possibly caused stress to the hull that may have contributed to the sinking of the freighter. Bradley Transportation Company had always focused on the safety of their crews instead of the material safety of their ships since their inception in 1912 and had not lost a ship until the loss of SS Carl D. Bradley. Because of this, they received an award for 2,228,775 injury-free man-hours between April 24, 1955 and December 31, 1957. The company and the ship were both known to be very safety conscious, and this put her in good standing with the United States Coast Guard and the community at large. Although normally one of the busiest ships in the fleet, SS Carl D. Bradley was laid up between July 1st and October 1st of 1958 due to a downturn in the steel manufacturing industry. In the 1958's shipping season, she only made 43 round trips before she was set to head to Manitowoc, Wisconsin to be laid up during winter and for repairs. During this layup, Bradley Transportation Company planned an $800,000 repair plan to replace her rusting cargo hold and bulkheads that never came to fruition, which would amount to roughly $8,091,239 in 2022 due to inflation. That's a lot of money. True, but it is well worth the cost in order to keep the crew safe and continue to safely transport freight. Because of the rusting, the crew often joked that SS Carl D. Bradley was being held together by her rust alone and remarked that they often picked up sheared off rivets by the bucketful after storms. This was because SS Carl D. Bradley flexed and twisted in heavy seas. Eleanor, why are cargo ships built to flex in heavy seas? Wouldn't it be better to just have a strong, rigged structure? Great question, Derek. Long, skinny cargo freighters, including SS Carl D. Bradley, are built to flex in heavy seas because of the intense amount of pressure that cargo puts on the hull, especially amidships. If it was completely solid and didn't flex or bend with the seas at least a little bit, there would be a much greater chance of the ship succumbing to the waves and breaking her back, which would cause her to snap in half and sink. So although it is unsettling, the ship being able to roll with the waves is actually a good thing. That's interesting. I definitely think so too. 
With the flexing in mind, the United States Coast Guard conducted their annual inspection of SS Carl D. Bradley on April 17, 1958, and deemed her rusty frame seaworthy. This doesn't mean she was the safest ship afloat, but that they thought she could withstand the expected pressures of a life at sea. Later that year, on October 30, 1958, the United States Coast Guard found no apparent problems during a safety inspection that included a fire drill and boat drill. With that, we have finally arrived at the final voyage of SS Carl D. Bradley. Just a reminder to everyone that we are about to discuss details of the sinking of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised as we continue forward. On November 17, 1958, SS Carl D. Bradley completed what was supposed to be her final voyage of the 1958 season, bringing crushed stone to Gary, Indiana, before the unpredictable weather of winter hit the Great Lakes. After leaving Gary, Indiana, she set course for Manitowoc, where she would be dry docked and receive these much-needed re repairs to her hull that we talked about earlier. She left Gary an empty freighter on November 17, 1958 at 10 p.m. with 9,000 gallons of water in her ballast tanks for stability. What is a ballast tank? A ballast tank is a compartment on a ship or other floating structure that is meant to hold water, usually used for stability if there is no cargo or weight on the ship that would keep it more stable. In submarines, these tanks are used to control buoyancy, trim a list, or provide even more load distribution. Only a few hours from her final destination, SS Carl D. Bradley received an order from her latest owners, U.S. Steel, to return to Calcite Harbor to deliver one last load of stone. It was a last-minute order, and the crew was looking forward to a period of respite after a long freighting season. Unfortunately for SS Carl D. Bradley, there were two storm fronts meeting over the Great Lakes that would cause a disastrously large storm. During that time, there was a line of 30 tornadoes extending from Illinois to Chicago. More than one foot of snow fell on North and South Dakota. Nearly two feet of snow fell in Wyoming, and temperatures plummeted in Nevada and Arizona, with Arizona receiving a staggering 6.4 inches of snowfall. These clashing weather pressure systems would accumulate over the Great Lakes, causing enormous 20-foot swells and winds up to 35 miles per hour. The captain of SS Carl D. Bradley at the time was Captain Roland Bryan, known as a heavy weather captain who took pride in running a tight ship and getting his cargo from place to place in a timely manner. His usual course toward Rogers City up Lake Michigan was quicker and ran close to the Michigan shoreline, which can be both good and bad. Better protection from storms, but a higher likelihood of running aground on a shoal, sandbar, or reef. He avoided the brunt of the swelling sea by hugging the Wisconsin shoreline. Captain Bryan, his first mate, and second mate planned their route to take them to Canal Island and then turn at Lansing Shoal near the Beaver Island grouping. The seas were gathering their strengths from the southwest, but it was not considered any more severe than a typical November storm on the Great Lakes, and the ship was riding over the swells like a dream. There is conflicting evidence found in a letter that Captain Bryan wrote to a friend that he was well aware of the needed repairs for SS Carl D. Bradley, and that he harbored doubts in the 31-year-old freighter and her ability to continue to weather heavy storms. He worried about her sagging in the center and breaking her back, stating that the ship would probably shouldn't be at sea. 
but despite these reservations, Captain Brian and SS Carl D. Bradley found themselves at sea together on November 18, 1958. While the Carl D. Bradley was making her way toward Rogers City, two ships ran parallel with her as she passed Milwaukee, Wisconsin at 4 a.m. Twelve hours later, she would be running at a reduced speed. By 4 p.m., she was past Poverty Island with Captain Brian on the con and the first mate on watch. Gale force winds blew around 65 miles per hour from the southwest, and despite the heavy conditions, Carl D. Bradley was, quote, riding comfortably with a heavy following sea slightly on the starboard quarter. This means she was doing well despite the conditions. At 5.35 p.m. on November 18, 1958, SS Carl D. Bradley was around 12 miles off the shores of Gull Island and was making her way steadily to Rogers City. About this time, a loud thud of echoes around the ship, followed by heavy vibrations. The first mate turned aft and noticed the stern sagging, alerting the captain. Captain Bryan slammed the engine's telegraph system to stop engines immediately and sounded the alarm to abandon ship. Their biggest fear was being realized as the SS Carl D. Bradley broke back and snapped in two. As the ship was breaking apart, Captain Bryan shouted to his crew on deck to run and retrieve their life vests. The first mate managing to radio transmissions of Mayday and give their position before the power lines aboard were severed. The distress call was received by the United States Coast Guard amateur radio enthusiasts and commercial radio stations on both land and sea. The former Queen of the Lakes was sinking, and the lives of the crew hung in a fragile balance. Aboard SS Carl D. Bradley, there was one life raft in the bow section and two lifeboats stored in the stern. The crew in the stern section attempted to lower the lifeboats. Unfortunately, one became entangled in the cables, and the other dangled at an impossible ankle for launching or boarding due to heavy seas, and the list that SS Carl D. Bradley took. The life raft in the bow section was tossed out clear of the wreck as the bow sank in the lake, and only four crew members managed to reach this raft. Repeatedly, these four men were tossed from the life raft, and they struggled to keep their strength as they hauled themselves back into the raft. The four men dwindled as they lost their strength down to three survivors who waited in the heavy seas as the sun went down, the temperatures dropped, and the likelihood of their survival shrank. Nearby, a German cargo vessel known as the Christian Sartori witnessed the breaking up of the Carl D. Bradley from the binoculars, claiming to have heard a loud boom and witnessing a red, yellow, and white column of flame and shrapnel launch into the sky. They came to their own conclusion that SS Carl D. Bradley had exploded, though this hasn't been proven, and after witnessing said explosion, they immediately altered their course and headed toward the wreckage. In the heavy winds and seas, it took one and a half hours for the Christian Sartori to traverse the four miles to the location of SS Carl D. Bradley. The Plum Island life-saving station deployed a 36-foot boat within minutes of the sinking, but the crew was unable to steer or make any sort of headway in the worsening storm and was forced to seek shelter by Washington Island. A United States Coast Guard cutter called the Sundew departed Charlevoix, Michigan, into the pounding seas of the open lake as the storm continued to get worse and the wind speeds hit a fever pitch. She arrived at the search area for the Carl D. Bradley at 10.40 p.m., roughly five hours after the freighter disappeared beneath the feet of her crew. United States Coast Guard cutter Holly Hawk from Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, arrived at 1.30 a.m. on November 19th after a seven-hour trip that was described as a visit to hell by her skipper. During the night, 
The families of the crew of SS Carl D. Bradley heard the news and made their way from Rogers City to Charleville, holding a standing vigil as they prayed for the best of their loved ones. Eight other commercial vessels had joined in the search by daybreak, with United States Coast Guard air and surface units continuing to search for survivors for days afterward. Around 8.37 a.m. on November 19, 1958, the cutter Sundew located the bow section life raft from SS Carl D. Bradley 15 long hours after the former Queen of the Lakes had foundered. In the life raft, three men were found, first mate Elmer H. Fleming, deck watchman Frank L. Mays, and deck watchman Gary Strzelecki. Unfortunately, Strzelecki would die shortly after being rescued due to complications from hypothermia. Aboard the Sundew, the two survivors recalled their tale of survival. Shortly after SS Carl D. Bradley sank, they launched two out of three flares that were stored on the life raft. They attempted to light the third when they noticed a Christian Sartori approaching, but it was too wet and wouldn't light. Because of this, Sartori passed within 100 yards of their raft without spotting them. Mays reported his cork-filled life jacket kept him afloat, but he had to hold it down just to keep it on because of the force of the water around them. Sundew and other vessels recovered 17 bodies during the day, all of them donning their life jackets as they'd been instructed. The bodies and survivors were brought back to Charlevoix, the bodies being taken to City Hall in order to be identified by their families. More life jackets were found with their laces tied indicated they'd been worn but had been more than likely slipped off in the catastrophic storm. Of the 35 crew, 33 died in the sinking, with 15 bodies still unrecovered to this day. When the ice broke up in the spring of 1959, the United States Corps of Engineers located the Carl D. Bradley's wreck using sonar equipment on board MS Williams. The wreckage was located roughly five miles northwest of Boulder Reef and just south of Goal Island, lying at a depth of 370 feet. Later in 1959, U.S. Steel hired the Los Angeles-based Global Marine Exploration Company to survey the wreckage using an underwater television on the USS Submarex. Despite the survivors swearing up and down that they saw Car SS Carl D. Bradley break in two, and the Christian Sertori seeking the ship explode, the survey found the ship lying on the bottom of the lake in one piece. The U.S. Steel survey of the wreck is heavily criticized because it was conducted without impartial witnesses and in complete secrecy. What did they not want the public to find out? Well, the Coast Guard went in to answer these questions with their own survey, though there is conflict in these findings as well. So far in this story, we have three conclusions drawn. Number one, according to the survivors, SS Carl D. Bradley sagged and broke in half. Number two, SS Carl D. Bradley succumbed to a rusty hull and broke back. And number three, the Christian Sartori claims to have seen the, the Carl D. Bradley explode and sink afterward. The Coast Guard Marine Board of Investigation, which we will abbreviate to the board, found that SS Carl D. Bradley sank from excessive hogging stresses like the survivors claimed. The board also reported at the time of the tragedy, there were four ships running parallel to or just ahead of the Carl D. Bradley, with eight other vessels on Lake Michigan seeking shelter near the shoreline while Carl D. Bradley found herself in the middle of the lake during the storm. Because of the ship leaving the relative sh safety of the shoreline, the board called Captain Bryan's judgment poor. However, the commandment of the United States Coast Guard, a man named Vice Admiral A.C. Richmond, issued his own report. In his findings, he disapproved 
of the conclusion brought forward by the board and concluded that Brian did not use poor judgment, as the ship was also reported to have been faring well in the seas before the incident. He also concluded that if the ship did indeed break in half, it wasn't due to sagging, but instead due to undetected structural weakness or defect, aka the rusty hole we talked about earlier. Later, a maritime historian named Mark Thompson wrote that the type of steel used in older vessels may have contributed to structural failure in many sinkings, including Carl D. Bradley. He said, and I quote, After the Carl D. Bradley sank in 1958, Coast Guard technical experts were aware of the shortcomings of the notch-sensitive and brittle steel that was used to build many ships prior to 1948, but there doesn't seem to have been any program in place to warn the owners or crew of such vessels. That led to the loss of SS Daniel J. Morrill in 1966 and may have been a factor in many other shipwrecks. End quote. Following their investigation, the Coast Guard Marine Board of Investigation made five safety recommendations. One, mechanical changes should be made in the way lifeboats are disengaged and deployed. Two, a second life raft should be mandatory on Great Lakes cargo ships because they land upright no matter how they are overturned. Three, each lifeboat should be equipped with two tow ropes. Four, Six parachute-type flare signals with equipment for firing them skyward should be stored on each lifeboat and life raft. And five, the cork and canvas life vests should be updated to include crotch straps and collars to support the neck. Since the incident, life rafts were changed to be inflatable and with covered canopies to protect the crew members, and ship structural regulations have been updated to lean away from the rigid structures seen in the time of SS Carl D. Bradley. There was also legal sediment. SS Carl D. Bradley was estimated to be valued at $8 million when she sank, roughly $78.5 million today, making her the most expensive shipwreck in the Great Lakes history to this day. U.S. Steel initially only offered $660,000 to the families as a settlement, and 10 of these families sought $7 million restitution, wanting U.S. Steel to take responsibility for their part in the sinking. One year and 16 days after the sinking, a settlement of $1,250,000 was reached and distributed to the families of the victims, a drop in the bucket compared to the loss of their loved ones. Later surveys of the wreckage with survivor Frank Mays in tow found that the survivors had been right all along and SS Carl D. Bradley broke up in the storm and the wreckage was actually in two pieces. This brings justice and a small bit of solace to the survivors and shows that the most reliable sources in these cases are the survivors themselves. This episode hopes to bring their story to the light and keep their memories alive. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you like this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you like this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help reach more listeners like you. Tune in next Sunday for the story of RMS Carpathia, a Cunard ocean liner famous for being the rescue ship of the RMS Titanic that sank in World War I. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.